there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge. Inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Within three weeks since the murders of four University of Idaho students, and police are starting to receive toxicology reports on the victim's hair, fibers, blood, and DNA, according to law enforcement, all considered critical evidence from the crime scene. The case remains unsolved. Police still have not found a murder weapon or named a suspect, but investigators saying today they are trying to provide information while protecting the integrity of the investigation. Saying in a statement, we firmly believe speculation and unvetted information is a disservice to the victims, their families, and our community. The stabbing deaths of these four students has created turmoil at the university, and in the quiet community of Moscow that hasn't recorded a single murder since 2015. Less than one month ago in Idaho on Sunday, November 13th, four University of Idaho students were killed in an off-campus house. That same morning, at 11.58 a.m., someone called 911 and reported an unconscious person. Moscow Police Department responded and located four victims, two on the second floor of the home and two on the third floor. The 911 call came from inside the home where the victims were killed using a survivor's cell phone. An autopsy was conducted and confirmed the identity of the four victims. There's one male victim and three female victims. Forgive me, please, if I mispronounce any of the victims' names as I am going off of the Moscow Police Press Conference pronunciations. The victims were identified as Ethan Chapin, a 20-year-old freshman from Conway, Washington. We also have Madison Mogan, a 21-year-old senior from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We have Kaylee Gonzalez, 
age 21, also a senior from Rathdrum, Idaho. And we have Zanna Carnodal, a junior. She was 20 years of age and from Post Falls, Idaho. And like you said, there's four victims, but there's six individuals that live in the house. Yes, it's a little tricky on the details about the home itself. And as it's reported, there were six people in total at the home during the times of the attack. And it's been reported that six people possibly live in the home. Now, of the four victims, not all of them were people that actually lived in the home. According to the limited information released regarding the autopsies, all four victims were stabbed to death. All four victims are believed to have been asleep when the attacks started. Some of the victims had defensive wounds. There were no signs of sexual assault. In regards to the home where the victims were found, this is a rental house just off campus. The three women victims were renters and roommates at the home. Ethan Chapin, the lone male victim, was Zana Carnodal's boyfriend, and he was staying the night when the four were killed. And as you pointed out, Captain, we have two surviving roommates. The two other roommates were present that night when the victims were killed. They lived at the rental house with Madison, Kaylee, and Zana. And I believe their initial claims were that they were asleep during the attacks. That morning when one of the victims was discovered to be unconscious by one or both of the surviving roommates, they called a third party. So someone or someones from outside of the home then comes to the home and shortly afterward, a call to 911 is placed. It has been reported that the call initially came from someone, not a roommate of the victims, but someone using a roommate's cell phone. Police have released very little details about this 911 call. One detail is that the 911 operator spoke to several persons that morning. And again, the call came from one of the roommate's cell phones. Yeah, initially there was some speculation that the 911 call came from the actual killer, but I don't actually believe that 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 is the case. Yes, that was one of the questions that was asked of the Moscow Police Department at the press conference, and that was quickly shot down. So it was asked, did the call come from the killer? And they said no. Plain and simple, no, the call did not come from the killer. From what it looks like to me, Captain, is that somebody responds to this call, a civilian responds to this call for help, comes over to help and may have brought a person or two with them or in the course of trying to help a, an additional person or two arrives. It sounds like there were multiple people that were in the home when police arrive on the scene. Then, unfortunately, they discover two victims having been killed on the second floor of the home and then two additional victims that were killed on the third floor of the home. It's been reported that all four victims were members of fraternities and sororities. Ethan Chapin was a triplet. His brother Hunter and his sister Mays are also University of Idaho students. Ethan was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity, according to the university. Zana Carnodal was a junior majoring in marketing and a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. Madison Mogan 
was a senior also majoring in marketing who belonged to Pi Beta Phi. And Kaylee Gonsalves was a senior majoring in general studies and a member of the Alpha Phi sorority, this according to the university. The killings have shaken Moscow, an Idaho panhandle town of 25,000 residents. This city has not had a homicide in about five years leading up to the events of November 13th of this year. For those not familiar with the area, the college town is located about 80 miles south of Spokane, Washington. The university is just a few minutes drive from the Washington-Idaho state border. I was looking at this the other day, Captain, and it looks like maybe a five-minute drive from the campus area to the border. You go west past the Applebee's, and then very quickly, you are in the great state of Washington. Yeah, I know they suspended classes for a little bit and then then continued classes, but I think it was during the Thanksgiving week, you know, when they're only in school for a couple of days where a lot of students weren't going to class and the university said, well, you don't have to attend class, but you can attend online. And I just thought it's a three day week. This is a, this is a mass murder. Just shut down school for a few days and just let these kids go home and feel safe. Cause at that time, and, and maybe still to this date, we don't have a very good idea of who this killer is. That's exactly right. So the Moscow police chief, his name is James Fry. He has reminded us almost daily that they have not identified a suspect or found the murder weapon. What you're talking about leads to what I find to be something that seems to be highly debated, not just online, but more importantly on the campus itself, where the general public keeps asking the police for clarification. Is there a threat to the community here? Right. So on November 15th, this is two days after the murders, the Moscow police say they preliminarily believe this was an isolated targeted attack. And there is no imminent threat to the community at large. That's their words verbatim. And the evidence quote, and sorry, And that, quote, evidence indicates that this was a targeted attack. Other statements that are very similar say the killings came in an isolated targeted attack and there's no imminent threat to the community at large. Police also said evidence from the scene indicates there is no broader risk, but provided no information about the evidence nor why they believe the victims were targeted. The following day, police backtracked some of that, saying they could not actually say whether there was a threat to the public or not. Yeah. And laymen speak. They're basically saying, we think we have evidence that points that these are, these crimes took place because of the victims. Somebody that they were connected to was most likely the killer. This is what happens in any of these cases, especially when we have multiple victims. So Barry and honey Sherman, Media was asking right away from Jump Street the same question. Do we have a threat here to the community? Should we should we all be concerned? Should we, we be scared for our lives? When the two girls were killed in Delphi, Indiana, that was the first question that police were answering time and time again. And then, of course, this is the question that keeps popping up over and over again, especially this first week. And here's here's where my feelings are on this. 
and I'm, I'm not calling anybody out, but my feelings on this are, yes, I don't care if this was a targeted attack or not. I don't care if Delphi was targeted or not, or Honey and Barry Sherman. Any of these cases, when you have somebody who has been murdered and the killer is still out there and you know very little about the crime itself or you have very few leads on how to track this individual down who's responsible for the homicide, there is a threat to the community, whether it's targeted or not. You know, I had this conversation the other day. We were talking about the Nancy Eagleson homicide. And right. as you know, Captain and, and longtime listeners of this show knows, that's a 62-year-old case. And the longer that a case drags on without result, without a solution, the more suspicious people get. So in Nancy's case, depending on who you talk to, you could have a dozen decent suspects in their mind. And the question that kept coming up time and time again is, well, if you had to narrow it down, Nick, who would be your number one or your top three? And my answer to that was simply, look, we have all these people that, that you question and say they could be responsible for Nancy's murder. However, there are two people on that list that killed other individuals. And for me, that prioritizes them much more than these other suspects in my mind, simply because of the fact that these two individuals are capable. We know they're capable of murder because they've done it before. And so that in itself is a threat to the public. Thank God most of us are not capable of murdering another individual. Well, I think most of us are capable of murdering somebody. We just choose not to be giant douche waffles. What we have here on the campus in the surrounding communities of the university of Idaho, whether you like it or not, or whether it was targeted or not, you have someone or some ones that were capable of going into a home and attacking four individuals in their sleep and murdering them. That person or persons will always be capable of doing that again. There is a threat, whether the police want to admit it, whether the university wants to admit it or not, regardless if this is targeted, there is, in fact, a threat to that community. And, in fact, there's a threat to the surrounding communities as long as this person stays at large. Yeah, you sing it, sister. Police are desperately seeking information in this case. They are also seeking surveillance footage. It has been several weeks, so they have had some time to collect that information and potential footage, and they have uh, been able to do so and had some success with that. But they really need any type of public assistance and any help that can be provided to them in this case. As said, we are reminded almost daily from the Moscow police chief that they have not identified a suspect or found a murder weapon. So they need your help. They need our help. Information can be phoned in at 208 883-7180. Also, tips can be emailed to the following address. That is tipline at ci.mosco.id.us. And you don't have to write any of that information down. That will be in today's show notes. So if you need to refer to that in the future, we'll have that available for you. Well, if you're law enforcement and you're showing up to the scene, the first thing you have to do is that we have two surviving people that lived in the house that 
were at the house at the time, you have to vet them, I think, first. Because I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities to look at them as possible suspects. But then they brought in other individuals to that crime scene. So that makes it even more difficult. The more people that are at these houses, it becomes more difficult for law enforcement. And also anybody that's been to college knows you have multiple house parties. So that means there's thousands and thousands of handprints and DNA and and so much stuff that makes this crime scene, I think, a lot harder for for law enforcement. Yeah, this is a difficult case for for many reasons, and we've talked about this before. That of course, your the victim's social circle is going to be where you will most likely find your perpetrator. And now we have to times that by four. We have four victims here, so we have police on record saying that at least at one point in their investigation, they believe that this was a targeted attack, meaning one or all of these victims were targeted. But this is a very bizarre crime to try to investigate one, because the totality of the number of potential suspects, the number of potential witnesses, because you have four victims, everything's times by four here. And then the bizarre nature of the crime scene itself and how it possibly went down because here you have four people that were killed inside this home but investigators what little information is coming out one thing that they have told us is they believe and we'll go through a a timeline here in a bit but they believe that the other two victims the surviving victims two people that lived there at the home were present at the time of the murders and they were not attacked. They had no injuries. What happened and how does this go down? And how is, unfortunately, the perpetrator or perpetrators successful in getting into this home, carrying out these attacks, and yet we have two unharmed individuals that we don't know what kind of information, if any, they are able to provide to law enforcement. Yeah, it's very confusing because we don't think there are eyewitnesses. We don't think these roommates were ear witnesses but then they call 911 and say that somebody's unconscious but th- they should have seen the blood everywhere i mean this is a massive bloody murder scene the three topics that i want to make sure that we get to and we're not going to be able to get into everything with this case here today because a lot of it is still speculation and rumor at this point we've had so many people hit us up and say when will you guys be talking about the university of Idaho murders? And we know that this is something that's, that's in the media right now. It's on the front lines of the media and being asked that we felt a duty to, to deliver some information here today. And partly I believe captain that it is our duty to deliver some information here today because I'm already starting to see some strange things coming out in this case that are very likely not true or not a part of this case. I want to steer clear of those items today and stick to what we do know for certain. We can get into some speculation along the way, but I want to kind of stick to the path that has been created, the narrative that has been created through the survivors and through local law enforcement working this case. Because as we've seen in other cases, 
that there's a lot of strange things that pop up. There's a lot of things that are created out of make-believe and cases. And then when you get closer to the case being solved or once the case is solved, you realize, oh, those those things that seem like they were almost out of a horror flick or off of the movie screen that seem like they probably weren't true. Well, now we know that they aren't true. So again, we won't know what's going on in, in a large portion of this case until they find the person or persons responsible, obviously. But I think it's important to deliver and remind everybody of what information is out there, because that's how you're going to have to build your case. That's what detectives are going to use to build their case. And this is not something where anybody is sitting there, sitting on their hands, hoping that somebody's going to phone in the correct information. No, we have the police department. We have a lot of state police involved already in this case. We have the FBI behavioral science unit that is been sent to the area. We have local state FBI agents as well for Idaho that have been on scene since very early on in this case. So we got a lot of very capable agencies and persons working this case and things might start moving a little quickly here. Yes. A lot to dive into on this strange case, but first let's take a quick beer break. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. 
when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash T-C-G. That's mintmobile.com slash T-C-G. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash T-C-G. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Tired of the same old game nights? Looking for a fun new activity to do with your family, your partner, your friends, or by yourself? Then Hunt a Killer is for you. With Hunt a Killer, you get to be the detective. You'll need to sort through evidence, piece together clues, and solve the case with an immersive murder mystery game. Pick from standalone single-part crime cases, multi-chapter mystery boxes, jigsaw puzzles, or my favorite books, Plus, they offer an exclusive monthly subscription storyline that unfolds over six months. Hunt a Killer has different difficulty levels and storylines, so you can customize it to your interest and skill level. And the items in the box are realistic. They feel authentic, and they're pretty cool. You'll probably want to keep them when you're done playing the game. Plus, there's a spoiler-free online community of over 100,000 members if players get stuck or want to chat about true crime. I love Hunt a Killer. I've been playing for several years now. And as I've already pointed out, my favorite is the books. But when I get my box for Hunt a Killer and the mystery begins, I love to sift through the clues and the evidence. I love the puzzles. I love the ciphers. And most of all, I love playing the game with my friends. Also, they have collaborations with Nancy Drew, Agatha Christie, and Blair Witch. Do you have what it takes to hunt a killer? Learn more at huntakiller.com slash garage and use promo code garage for $10 off your purchase. All right, cheers. Thanks for joining us for this special episode. Cheers to everybody. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers to all of our faithful listeners out there. And a cheers and our thoughts and prayers go out to all the staff and classmates and family members of these four victims. We understand that these are trying times, and we hope that this... investigation gets some legs and takes off soon and starts heading in a very good direction. I feel like law enforcement 
is currently doing everything that they can. Of course, they're not sharing a whole lot of information, so there has been some frustration on the part of the public and students at the university there, which I completely understand. But for the time being, we need to keep in mind that they are trying their very hardest. They're putting a lot of resources on this investigation. Hopefully, they'll have a suspect in their sights here pretty soon. I do want to point out here, Captain, because we typically don't cover a case that is just so recent. You know, we we covered Delphi back in 2017, but we covered it in, in May, and it took place in February, and we were one of the first to cover it. But usually with these cases, if you get inside of 90 days of when the case takes place, of the day in question, there's not a whole lot of information unless you have an arrest that takes place within 24, 48, 72 hours of the case itself. This is a very active investigation, as we said, with not a lot of information coming out. But I do want to point out the information that we are delivering here today has been compiled through several sources. And those include, but are not limited to the university itself, the Moscow police, the following news outlets, which are ABC, CNN, Fox, and the National Desk. Now, there are three things that we want to make sure that we hit on here today. And your mom, again, we should be learning more information in this case and hopefully sooner rather than later. But we're going to go with what we have here today. Those three additional items that I would like to make sure that we cover. We have a timeline that has been put together that has really started to flesh itself out. It's not in great detail. That's one of the things that investigators are hoping the public will come forward with more additional information to help them continue to flesh out this timeline of the four victims and their the people in their social circles. We have some, I'm calling them additional autopsy information, but it's more of comments that were made on the record from the county coroner. And we also have some additional house information. As we know, we talk about this every single week here in the garage. The The keys to these investigations are learning as much as you can about the crime scene, learning as much as you can about the victims and their surroundings, and also the investigation itself. Do you have anything that you think we should prioritize and tackle first here, Cap? The floor is yours, kind sir. Let's go with some of the additional house information that we have, and then we'll circle into the timeline. The house information, the crime scene itself, is what makes this case so mind-boggling to me and many others out there. It's very difficult to believe that someone or someones could sneak into this home attack and kill four individuals. You have two other individuals that live in the home that are said to have been present and likely sleeping at the same time of these attacks. The statements are that the attacks, when they started, the victims were asleep. Some of the victims, it's reported, had defensive wounds, so they likely, based off of those statements, the best I can gather is that they may have woke up mid-attack but how does this perpetrator or perpetrators seemingly get in there, this kind of level of stealth, and leave there with the same level, and you have two surviving members of the home 
you have it's reported that there was a dog that one of our victims, Kaylee, that she owned a dog and the dog was present when the officers arrived. It's reported that the dog was not. So they find two of the victims on the second floor of the home and two of the victims dead on the third floor of the home. And the vague statement regarding the dog is that the dog was not present where the victims were found, but was in the home when the officers arrived on the scene. And we have the statement from police where they are saying the other members of this home, they do not have reason to believe that they are involved in any way in the killing. So that's the kind of mind boggling scenario that we have here regarding the dog and the other two individuals. And then one statement that has come out more recently, and this is coming from the the property management team that manages this rental house is that there's actually a sixth person listed on the lease. That person, I'm unclear as if this person was still living there at the time. We know that this is, is student housing. We could have a situation where the sixth person decided to not attend school for the full year or, or left campus early uh, for the upcoming holiday and was not around at the time of the the homicides. It's a little unclear about this sixth person and their involvement in the actual home leading up to uh, the this tragic event. Yeah, this is absolutely tragic and and so confusing. So many questions. But I think the way they probably got in without being seen and and heard is this happened at the wee hours of the morning. So in a sleepy college town, there's just not a lot of people out. Well, and our four victims here did not return to the home until after 1 a.m. that night. We know that to be fact. In my neighborhood, I see somebody walking at 1 a.m. or afterward, and that's very bizarre. That's something that, that sends up a red flag here in my neighborhood, you don't anticipate seeing anybody out that late or, or roaming the streets, if it were. So let's get into, now that we've covered some of the additional home information that's been put forward by the media, I think we need to get into this timeline because the timeline's got some interesting details about it. And this timeline has been provided to us from foxnews.com. So if anybody wants to look this up, uh, you can go there and find it for yourself. I'm not going to go through the entire T of the article, but I'll just jump right into the timeline. Captain, comment as you see fit here. The timeline that they provide starts with Saturday, November 12th. And this technically will be the day before the homicides, but they the victims were killed in the small hours of the 13th and also discovered that same day. So keep that in mind. So Saturday, November 12, we have Kaylee Gonzalez post a, a final Instagram post at 8.57 p.m. And it's a picture that is a, almost famous at this point because I've seen it, this picture generated on and being thrown around on different websites and different news outlets. I mean, it couldn't paint a picture of happier people. All four of our victims are in this picture. They are look to be incredibly happy in this moment. From my understanding, I believe that this picture may have been taken a day or so before she posted, 
but the picture itself was not posted until 8.57 on Kaylee's Instagram. It's our four victims along with what appears to be two other persons who have been cropped out of the picture. So we do not know who those individuals are. There's versions of this picture without them cropped out. So that night, two of the persons here, Kaylee and Madison, they go to a bar and they hang out there. This bar is the corner club, which is in town. And from everything we can find, it states that they were there from about 10 o'clock till a little after 1 a.m. This was interesting to me, Captain, because when I started hearing that the four victims, it's believed that they did not arrive home until very close to 2 a.m. that morning. It was interesting to me because given the size of the town, and I know that it's a college, but I trolled around on the internet and, and on map apps very quickly realized it was going to be difficult. There was not a whole lot of businesses or bars that would stay open that late, even on a Saturday. So it really limited the locations that they could be going to because originally this was simply reported as they were at a sports bar or a local bar and had left there and arrived home around the two o'clock hour. So now we get some further detail. It was in fact, the corner club, which is in town. And while this is going on, while we have Madison and Kaylee there at the bar, we have Ethan and his girlfriend, Zana, who went to a party together at the Sigma Chi house, which is located on campus. Afterward, we have Madison and Kaylee who are captured on video on Twitch footage at 1.41 a.m. And this is, they are standing outside of a food truck in this video clip. They are waiting in line at the Grub Wandering Kitchens food truck, which I guess the locals call the Grub Truck. They are chatting with friends. They're placing an order. This is when they are last captured on uh, video. So we know that they didn't go straight from the bar to their home. They stopped off at this at this food truck first. Police initially said that that all of the parties had returned home by 11:45 a.m., but later revised their statement to say that Madison and Kaylee actually arrived home at 1:56 a.m. This is based off of additional evidence that they have recovered. And they received a ride back from a private party. This initially was reported as an Uber ride, but now it's being referred to as having received a ride back from a private party whom police have not named publicly, but they say that they have ruled out as a suspect. Now, when we're going through this article, and if we get to the other article as well, Captain, that I want to dive into, I want to be clear about something because the the language is changing throughout some of these articles. Okay. In some articles, what they are saying is that certain individuals have been cleared or certain individuals have been ruled out as a suspect. I will state as the article states it, but what I think that we need to make very clear here and what is very important to me is that the language that the investigators are choosing to use 
in regard to speaking with the public and the media is different than the language in some of these articles. A couple things that are in favor of law enforcement here is we have two parties and they're at two locations. Two girls are at a bar. The boyfriend and girlfriend are at a, a frat party. So because it's a small campus, law enforcement is going to have a good idea of the patrons of that bar and the patrons of that party. Those people obviously need to be looked at because they're the, some of the last people that come in contact with these individuals. But then we have the two girls that stop at the food truck. And then I know that they've investigated several people that have been a part of that video clip that you've talked about. But because this is not a huge campus and we don't have a ton of students and we don't have that many businesses open, this I think is in favor of law enforcement figuring out and being able to interview the patrons of both the party and the bar. And what I wanted to make sure that we were clear on here again, referring to that language that is being used, because in these situations, words have very powerful and true meaning. And so I always am mindful of the words that investigators are choosing to use when they speak with the public and choosing to use when they speak with the media. And the words that the investigators are using, again, different from these articles, I'm yet to see and hear with my own ears a quote of investigators saying that so-and-so has been ruled out as a suspect or so-and-so has been cleared in this case. In fact, what they have actually been saying time and time again are the two are these two statements. We don't believe that this person was involved. To me, that's very different than saying somebody's been cleared or ruled out as a suspect. The other thing that they are saying is that there is nothing connecting this incident or this person to this case. Again, that's different than saying somebody has been ruled out. To me, ruled out and cleared means we've determined this person in no possible way, any shape or form could have been involved in this. Saying we don't believe or have no reason to believe that they were involved means we could still find something later that changes what we believe happened here. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, hot pants. The article goes on to state that the two surviving roommates were females who survived the attack. They have also been cleared. Again, this is the language of the article, have been cleared as suspects that they returned home that night. They were out as well. They returned home before the four friends who were later killed. So these two female roommates, per this report, returned home around 1 a.m. So based off of all of this information, what, we, what it looks like, we have a home where six people are going to go to sleep that night. All six of these individuals are out on the town, and it appears that, that two of our victims are at this bar, then they hit the food truck. They get a private party to drive them home. That person has not been publicly named. We have our other two victims that were at a fraternity party on campus. They return home. And we have the two unnamed or previously unnamed roommates who return home as well that night. So they're all out. But the surviving roommates return around 1 a.m., then we have the two from the fraternity or sorority party that returned around 1.45 a.m. 
And then the last two people of the home return at 1.56 a.m. So that's interesting that they are able to narrow it down to very precise times here. And that is certainly very helpful for the investigation. But one of the things that are confusing is you think about the timeline and you go, okay, well, what if one of these individuals got into an argument with somebody and then the person followed them home? Well, that would make some sense as far as some kind of motive. It makes sense on some level, but what doesn't make any sense is that these two groups of individuals weren't together. So it wasn't like all four of them went somewhere and got in an argument and then that followed them back home. So that's where it gets even more confusing. Exactly. That's That really makes this complicated. And just the nature of the crime scene and the persons there at the home makes this very complicated as well. Police have been upfront in saying recently that it is believed that the murders took place between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m., And we know that the 911 call that came in that was received, that call came in at 11.58 a.m. I'd love to hear that 911 call. So there's our timeline right there. Police have stated, as the captain stated earlier, that the four victims were stabbed to death with a edged weapon, such as a knife. That was the language they were using early on. Lately, what has been stated is that it was a, a, a fixed blade weapon. What's interesting here too, is that through the course of their investigation, we're learning from persons that they've interviewed and businesses that they've gone to, that they have a very good idea of what kind of knife it was. This was not, it it was not a kitchen knife. This was not a pocket knife. This is what one business owner referred to as a Rambo style knife that they were specifically asking about a knife of that style. I typically call that a survivor knife. That's the way they were always advertised when we were kids there, Captain. But if anybody's seen the movie Rambo, they know exactly what kind of knife that they are are looking for. This would be a large blade. It would have a very sharp blade on one side with with a large handle. And I believe that's called the hilt, right? I'm not sure if that's exactly what that's, that's called, but but th- that there would be evidence of that on our victims, and that's why they are probably honing in on a very specific type of knife. Another thing I just want to point out that makes this difficult for law enforcement is I'm guessing the DNA transfer and the blood transfer. If you attack one victim and you get some blood on you and you attack the next victim, then you're going to be transferring their blood to the next victim and then both those victims' blood to the next victim and so on and so on. And to add additional information about the potential murder weapon here, we have the Idaho statesman that reported that police were focusing on a K-Bar. That's K-A-B-A-R brand knife in their investigation and had questioned a local hardware store manager about whether the shop had recently sold such a weapon. And then the article goes on to state that in the coming days that police were ruling out or clearing individuals that we have already mentioned, the roommates, the person, whomever drove them home 
it sounds like they've looked at several different people. Again, the language that I've seen them use outside of this article and other ones that we will cite here today is that they do not believe a person that certain person was involved or there's no evidence connecting them to the homicides, which again, I personally believe is different. Yeah. I think it's pretty strong to say that you ruled somebody completely out. I think by doing that, you run the risk of putting your foot in your mouth. I keep both feet in my mouth at all times. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's get into some of this additional information about the autopsies. Like we said here, Captain, they've released very little information on the autopsies, but the autopsies, the, from, from what little information they have released, it sounds to me like this was a rather quick, straightforward attack. The only thing that's bizarre there is that it appears that the victims remained asleep while the other victims were being attacked. Now we do have statements that are coming from the County coroner to the media that I find to be interesting. And, and two, they back up a lot of the suspicions early on and they back up some of the other statements that we have found in the media. So I summarized it as such. Four University of Idaho students were found dead in a rental house Sunday. They were stabbed to death in their beds and likely were asleep, a county coroner told a cable news channel. The county coroner told News Nation that each victim suffered multiple stab wounds from a, quote, pretty large knife. And goes on to say, state, quote, it has to be somebody pretty angry in order to stab four people to death, end quote. The victims, the coroner said, were stabbed in the chest and upper body area. The coroner said that the victims were likely asleep, some had defensive wounds, and each was stabbed multiple times, according to police. There was no evidence of sexual assault, police said, and law enforcement say that the murders took place between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. The other thing here in regard to the crime scene itself is there's no signs of forced entry into the home. There's also no sign of anything having been taken from the house. Yeah, and I can't speak to this particular house, but I know the houses on Ohio State campus, if a door is a little broken or a lock is a little broken, you're lucky to have your landlord come and fix it. Is it possible that the doors were locked, but somebody was able to either pick those locks or, you know, use the old credit card trick to get in and, and they and the people in the house just, just didn't deadbolt the door? Some other persons of possible interest that people I'm sure would like for us to speak about is there were multiple phone calls made from two of our victims, two of our female victims, to a male individual. It's now being reported that those multiple phone calls were to an ex-boyfriend of one of the victims. It appears, Captain, two things are going on with that. One, I'm very curious who this individual was when they weren't naming him. Right. And now they're listing him as an ex-boyfriend of one of the victims. But it then became clear that law enforcement was using this information for two things. One... Again, the statement of we don't have reason to believe that this person was involved, but it also sounds like these uh, text or phone calls, these communications were what helped them to narrow down the time of death as well. And so it seems like even they get home around 2 a.m., of course, 
you know, you don't go home and, and most of us don't go home from a night out and then go straight to bed. But it was very late at night when they return home. But it appears that they were still active for some period of time after returning to the home that night. Yeah. When I go to a bar and then I hit up the old grub truck, I'm passing out right when I get home. Let's just be clear about this. I want to, I want to make sure I'm clear on what you're stating. This ex-boyfriend was not just in communication with one of the roommates or one of the victims, but in communication with two of the victims. That is what the statements are from the articles that I've reviewed. Yes. To me, that is very suspicious. And to me, I'd want to know what those conversations were about. Agreed. And anybody that's communicating or interacting with any of our victims leading up to the murders is going to be somebody that will be interesting to police and to investigators. Now, in this regard, I personally did not find it to be bizarre. I did. I, I get it. But the social circles that I run in, almost everyone's significant others are very close friends with with everyone in the group and the way that I understand this. And and again, I'm just, you know, 40 year old dude living halfway across America away from, from these victims, trying to understand some victims in their, their lives going on that are half my age. So I clearly don't know anything. Well, clearly not. And you're living in a van down by the river, but just pointing out that from my understanding, the information that's out there is that the two that were in communication with this ex-boyfriend were Madison and Kaylee. And from my understanding and listening to the victims' families talk about their daughters and their daughters' relationships with each other, that these two were best friends from middle school and beyond like the, the the closeness of their relationship is so hard to describe to everybody out there because it sounds to me like many of us may have not experienced a friendship that is in fact this close for this long of a period of time so from middle school on high school and then they they go to the same college and become roommates together and they're two of the older persons living in this house, in this rental house on campus, I don't find it strange that having that close of a bond and relationship that one person that was not a part of that relationship of the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship was in communication with this male on that night. As said, those same two victims were together that entire night together. Right. Which could be something as simple as, Oh, I can't get a hold of Kaylee, so I text her best friend who was always with her. Right. Or I called her best friend who was always with her. Or so and so called him. I get it, and I think you're spot on, Captain. You're absolutely right. Police would be foolish to not look at him, and it obviously they have done so. To say that they've ruled him out or cleared him would be irresponsible. To say that they can't really connect them to the homicides is is likely a true statement of their investigation and the evidence that they have so far. The other thing that's interesting, and it's also in regard to Kaylee as well, is that I guess in October she had made reference to a potential stalker. There's very little details about that and, and what she had said to other people. 
However, the police come out and say that we believe that we have tracked down two individuals that may have been called a stalker. So these two individuals are our friends. They are persons that the police obviously know their names. They've been interviewed. Right. And one guy is saying, yeah, I saw I was at me and my buddy went to a public place. Those who stock together, flock together. And we went there with the intention or the hopes of meeting women, the ladies. And yes, I, I followed her around. I don't know if this was a bar. They don't go into what kind of business or what kind of gathering place this was. Right. But he says, yes, I followed her around. I may have even gone out to the parking lot when she went out to the parking lot he says he did not interact with her at all. This could be very simple as a, a situation that we see every night on a campus. Boy goes out hoping to meet girl. Boy is too chicken shit to approach her and talk with her, but does the weird thing where he kind of follows her around briefly or, or tries to exchange glances across the room in hopes that she will come over and speak with him, but never does so. The police say that they've, moved on from this individual and, and his friend and have no reason to believe that they had any type of involvement at all. But weirdly, he hasn't moved on. That was very weird to me. Mm -hmm. Not that they said that they've moved on from this individual, but it was weird to me that it, that they came out and they it sounded like they were so confident that they had tracked down the stalker. Like, oh, it's just this goofy guy that followed her around at a bar or what have you. Well, it could be a, but, like you said, a flippant comment that she made that it was just kind of joking. Oh, this guy followed me around at the bar. He's a stalker. Or it could be that she was talking about a different individual and they just haven't exactly. been able to identify that person. Again, a, a statement like that could mean the world or mean nothing because we don't know the context in which she said it. Exactly. And then what we do have where I thought that the police statements were very weird in that regard. They did come out a couple days later and said, Hey, yeah, we have this information and we spoke about this information with you guys previously, but we are now actively seeking additional information. If there was a, an actual stalker or if there was somebody of interest uh, to this case. And in regard to what Kaylee had said to her friends, again, we're getting very little details on what she had said, and it could have absolutely nothing to do with this crime. Now, where my head goes on this captain was something you had said earlier, where immediately knowing that our victims were out and about that night before they return home, the killer comes into the home and kills the victims and then flees Right. I wanted to know, and my first reaction was, you know what, damn it, law enforcement better be all over every person that was at that bar that night, all over them, like white on rice, baby, or everybody that was at that food truck or the person that gave them a ride home. But then you compound that Stock them if with you the have idea to. That, that two of our victims were at different locations and our other two victims was it we're at a completely different party, a completely different gathering. That makes this so bizarre to me. If you had somebody that got ticked off, went off the rails and wanted to do something to somebody that they had interaction with or, or otherwise that night leading up to it, why do we have two additional victims? Yeah. And then why do we have two individuals that weren't victims? To Unharmed. The person just get scared and stop the attack. 
I'd also want to go back further in time and say, was there a house party where somebody at that house party felt like they were disrespected or humiliated or whatever that maybe came back? Because this type of weapon to me is not a knife that you're just going to be carrying around with you to parties. So to me, this, this seems like not just some random thing that this was actually planned to some level. Well, and what I would encourage here is anybody, and I know I'm stating the obvious, but anybody on that campus or in the surrounding communities that knows somebody that has, or weeks ago had that type of knife, that type of weapon in their possession, please be on the phone with law enforcement and let them know that, you know, somebody that had that type of knife. This is not, it's not an uncommon knife, but it's not also a terribly common knife. It's not one that you would find in most people's homes. In fact, the only reason why I'm well aware of this knife is when I was in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, there was a good number of, of boys that, that, had this type of knife and would would bring it on like a camping trip or or something of that nature. Yeah, this is a type of knife to me that you buy and then you show your roommates, "Hey, check out my new knife." And they're typically not expensive. They're typically not incredibly well made. I can't speak to this uh K-Bar brand. I don't I don't know that brand specifically, but I will say this. This is not a knife that I would anticipate seeing someone of our age to have in their possession. Well, speak for yourself. I pretend to be Rambo every morning. There's so many unanswered questions, and obviously Mm -hmm. this case is going to develop more. But I actually think as much as we want information, a lot of the stuff that you've been reporting on is the police backtracking on statements. And I almost feel like, yes, they felt like they had to get ahead of this in the media, but I've actually... I actually think that they're making too many statements because when you have to start going back and correcting little details and the de- the devil, like you said, lives in the details of these little statements they're making, whether they're fully clearing somebody or they've just moved on from that lead, I think they're spending too much time trying to give information to the public. I think it would be better. I think law enforcement would be better served to sit back let the leads come in, work those leads, and when you have definitive information, then you present that definitive information to the public. And having people like the behavioral science unit there on scene, look, I don't think that as get as many people and as many resources involved as you can. I think that if they do come up with some kind of profile of the killer or killers, that's that's where I think that the FBI could be of the most service. Yeah. is determining how many people are responsible for these homicides. But the the actual profile, if it were, in fact, one perpetrator, because you have a campus, because you have a, a community of persons that are all roughly about the same age and they're all like-minded individuals that are attending that school, I think the I don't know how much a profile is going to help you in this situation. And you know, Captain, I'm a big proponent of of these of profiles. And again, where I think that the FBI could be of most service is determining how many persons are involved. It 
as difficult as it may be to believe from what I'm seeing here, it looks like probably one person involved. I would want to know a lot more about this dog and a lot more about this house. I've seen information come out that says that the layout of this home was tricky. It's three stories high, which is difficult anyway for somebody that's never been into the home. Is this somebody that has previously been in the home? As you pointed out, is this somebody that could have been at a house party that took place there at one point? Uh, If these individuals were targeted, did they target the right people? There's a million questions here. I want to know more about this dog, too. Is this dog yapper? Is the dog friendly or not friendly? Is this dog going to bark and go crazy at a person that they've never seen before? Yeah, and we again, we don't know the location of the dog at the time. Is it a dog that they put in a cage um, at nighttime and the dog sleeps in their cage? I think you're right and wrong. I think FBI and law enforcement could determine if they believe it was one individual or multiple. Mm-hmm. I think you can do that because, look, we have an idea of what the murder weapon was. Then we could figure out the idea of if the killer was right-handed or left-handed. But I actually think because it is a small college and now you have all these people on high alert and they're going to be looking for every individual that's acting different or or has left school or maybe left school before these attacks happen. I think a profile would do a lot of good because with a small college, people are going to be on high alert. And I think that's going to lead to some individuals being looked at that maybe law enforcement doesn't have on their radar. Very possible. Very possible. The, the other things to consider in this case as well, you know, I want to know more about this potential sixth person that is on the lease. Where were they? Why are they not mentioned hardly at all in any of the newspaper articles and the news articles? Was that person not even on campus at the time? For all we know, they'd returned home to visit family for the holidays or maybe finish school early or signed on to the lease and didn't attend school this year for any number of reasons. Yeah. Or they lived in the house for a while and didn't like it. And maybe there was a conflict there. When I hear knife attack, sleep or no sleep, defense wounds or no defense wounds, my main goal as an investigator would be a couple things. Blood evidence is going to be so key here. We've talked about this many times here in the garage. In these types of knife attacks, it's almost impossible for the perpetrator to not cut themselves, injure themselves, leave their own blood at the scene. I'm not so hopeful on that because we're sitting here almost a month later and those types of tests don't take forever to run. Now, could we have a mixing of blood and fluids? Yes, that's a possibility. And that certainly complicates things. So blood evidence would be a high priority for me. Uh, Fingerprint evidence can get difficult here. As you pointed out, campus house could have been house parties. We have uh, an additional party that we don't know their comings and goings as well. Well, and we also have a lot of people that live there. And so all their guests that they would have come visit them and all their family members that might come visit them. I think we're going to find, and this is just my gut feeling that there is some sort of premeditation, whether There was a conflict at the bar or conflict at the party or conflict a week or two prior to this. 
mm-hmm. that this individual either got the knife for that reason or had the knife and then had to go home and prepare themselves. And that, to me, would lead towards they prepared themselves by getting, they probably prepared themselves by getting the weapon, maybe putting on gloves, maybe changing clothes that they were able to throw away. And that's the other difficult thing for law enforcement. You have a lot of houses, you have dumpsters in that area, and somebody could have discarded their clothes pretty easily and quickly. Could it have been somebody that was watching the house that this had been something that was bubbling up for some time? It That stands to reason a little bit, considering that the two surviving members of the household returned first and they were unharmed and the attack doesn't go down until after these other four people return to the home. The other thing that, that I want to circle in on here that is, is concerning in these knife attacks, there's, there's a considerable amount of blood. And I know that I talked about blood evidence, but this is on that same regard footprints. You would expect to find bloody footprints at this scene. And that would be very good evidence that could lead you to your killer. That would be great evidence that's going to let you know if we should be looking for one, two, or three people. The problem here and my major concerns and the red flags that I have in this case where I I sit back and I go, you know what? And I know, forgive me, Captain, because two of these individuals are are likely just victims uh, themselves having been roommates and losing very close friends and and experiencing something that that none of us should ever have to experience. So just forgive me while I go down this road of speculation here, but my concerns are are twofold. One, when it's when it's stated that you called someone else before a call to 911 was made and the 911 call is then about an unconscious person. The the amount of blood that would have been at that scene, and we're not talking about they discover a victim at six in the morning when it's still dark out, right. or five in the morning when it's still dark out. This is 11.56 a.m. or 11.58 a.m. when the 911 call comes in. To, to me, I... And I, you don't have to be a garage expert to sit here and go, you know, there's a, there's clear and obvious differences between a stab victim and somebody that's just blacked out or passed out and unresponsive. There should have been blood indicators there to, to tell these roommates that something else happened here. And instead a call goes out to a third party or to additional people that then come into our, into the home and then into our crime scene right, and trample our crime scene where bloody shoe prints could have been the key indicator of who is responsible for this bloody shoe prints could have been the breadcrumb trail that led you directly to your perpetrator. And now we got people there trampling all over our crime scene. And, and the call that comes in is weird. And I, and here's the thing. Very likely the 911 call, if we had the audio for it, would probably clear a lot of that up. Yeah. And what we've learned through covering so many cases is that cases are similar. So I think you can look into spree killings like the one that Bundy did, the one that Richard Speck did, or any other spree type killing. 
And I think you'll find similarities in those crimes and this crime in Idaho. But I also am drawn to crimes like Lululemon, where they find somebody at the scene that now we quote unquote call victim and then ultimately becomes a suspect, ultimately becomes the person charged with the murders of that crime. And if I killed a roommate, well, let me invite a bunch of other people over to the crime scene to start contaminating it. So it's not, I think, unfair to say if I was law enforcement, like I stated at the beginning of the show, if I'm law enforcement, those are the two individuals I'm looking at. And anybody that came over to that house, anybody that they called, I'm starting there and I'm trying to vet them as much as I can before I move to the outside circle. So many questions, and I hope that the families and the students and the staff and everybody involved gets the answers that they so rightfully deserve sooner rather than later, and hopefully we can start to close out this case. And again, our thoughts and prayers with everybody that have have been impacted by this horrible tragedy. I know that we did our shows a little different than we do traditionally here in the garage this week. This, for those that have never experienced or subscribed to our other show, Off the Record, these shows are much closer to what we do on Off the Record. And you can sign up for that by going to our website at truecrimegarage.com. Next week, we will be back in the garage and doing our traditional shows as one would expect. We hope that you will join us again next week. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let it. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.